We all know what happens if you do nothing. If you do nothing at all, we're going to be exactly as we are now. We're going to have the exact amount of pain and suffering, and accomplishing things is going to be as difficult as it is to write a new song or create a new work of fiction or figure out a mathematical problem, etc. Whereas with these advantages, we really don't know what humans are capable of accomplishing. If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking with one of them in real life. Welcome to Back in America, the podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. I'm Josh Wagner, the podcast editor at Back in America, a podcast questioning America's culture, values, and identity. Since the early 90s, transhumanism, the philosophy and ideology that the next stage in human evolution will come from artificial biological and genetic enhancements, has taken the world by storm. Technologists ranging from Ray Kurzweil to Elon Musk have professed their faith in the doctrine, going as far as to attempt to upload their brains into computers in the hopes that they can be reconstituted when the technology improves. While these seem, might seem like far-fetched and utopian dreams, such dreams are an extreme version of everyday technologies, contact lenses, organ transplants, and even the world's first mRNA vaccine for COVID-19. In 5, 10, or even 50 years, will transhumanism be as commonly accepted as these other technologies? Transhumanism also raises a number of other ethical questions. Even if we could extend the abilities and lifespan of the human race, should we? Wouldn't this just reinforce the growing economic, racial, and social inequality at the heart of our country, driving forward COVID-19 spread, the Black Lives Matter protests, and rising rates of unhappiness? And what's the difference between transhumanism and historical eugenics, the unscientific practice of gene editing for specific racial or other traits linked to early administrators at Stanford, Berkeley, and even Caltech? At the heart of transhumanism, lies an undeniable optimism about human potential and capabilities, an optimism which seems unwarranted. To answer these questions, I'm joined today by James Clement, a former international tax lawyer turned scientist and a self-described transhumanist. Working through the science of anti-aging, James is at the forefront of developing such transhumanist technologies as the director of Better Humans the world's first transhumanist biomedical research clinic, and one of the few labs to be fully devoted to it. Welcome to Back in America, James. Hi, Josh. Thanks very much for having me on. To start off, James, how would you explain transhumanism to someone who is totally new to the subject? Well, I think the the easiest explanation that I like to start with is just a viewpoint that you can use technologies, which includes biotechnology in particular, to transcend your essentially evolved status. Anyone that's looked at human and animal biology knows that evolution is basically a kludge. We inherited lots of things that simply worked, and nature has a really great way of taking things that work and slightly modifying it for a completely different job. So simply the easiest transition from you know one use to another. We've certainly become successful um, 
for a number of reasons, but largely now because of of our uh, of our brain capacity and and our intellect, our ability to communicate, to to write, and to uh, store knowledge. Transhumanists, in particular, don't believe that we should be limited by that. As the transhumanist movement gained traction worldwide, the BBC covered its popularity in a segment for Intelligent Machines Week in 2015. People in the world of transhumanism have a few common ideologies. One, for example, is that the human brain is limited and human evolution needs to be altered manually. Another is a pretty controversial one, that aging is something that should not exist. It's a disease. We really need to abolish aging in the same way that we need to abolish cancer and we need to abolish rape and murder. A aging, we just shouldn't allow, allow to exist. And the, the fact that everyone takes for granted you know, there's no choice but to just get old, die, and rot. I mean, in a hundred years, that will be looked on as insanely barbaric, the same way we look back on slavery as insanely barbaric now. We're actually really curious about your own personal relationship with transhumanism. Can you take me back to the day when you knew that this is an issue that you wanted to about your life too? I actually, in school, started out as just kind of an ordinary science nerd. I grew up on a farm in, in Missouri. My, my dad had been a fighter jet pilot. So when I was, you know, five or six years old in the early 60s, they were doing Gemini, Mercury, Apollo launches all the time. It was in the news all the time. Lots and lots of other kids. I was really interested in becoming an astronaut. But when I was seven or eight years old, I had to have classes for reading. And my dad basically sat me down and said, sorry, son, you're never going to be an astronaut, period. You know, think of something else to do. And I, I kept my interest in space, but it definitely broke my heart at the time. And what we couldn't see at that time into the future was that a transhumanist style therapy would come along before I was even out of college that would give me better than 20-20 vision. And that was that was contacts. This kind of human enhancement technology is actually all around us, whether it's prosthetics or medical devices. People can have pacemakers that they can alter the through uh, software, alter the resting heartbeat. These aren't things that were possible 10, 20 years ago. Before I became a transhumanist, I was I was really just a plain old secular humanist. Having studied transhumanism. What's the hardest thing for people to understand about it? I see all the time people make statements based on current technologies that we know are going to change in the very near future. And so you want to say, well, you know, what you're saying isn't going to be valid at all in just maybe a couple more years. So, it, you know, you're not making a a real ethical or philosophical argument here. You're you're basically um, you know, saying that, that, you know, something is, let's say too risky and, um, you know, risk happens in, in lots of different fields, but it happens in medicine a lot. Um, this is true of almost everything in biology that, that we have a hand in. And so it frustrates me, um, when people make blanket statements that things aren't possible or that, um, they're too risky or or it just will never happen that you know it it will be possible to resolve a problem that they see right now wow 
And just to come at transhumanism from the other side, there seems to be a kind of idealism at its heart. On one hand, it would be amazing if every human could have a longer lifespan, but at the same time, that would negatively impact the sustainability of our planet, taxing our limited resources, and accelerating an already overpopulated and overpolluted Earth. How would you respond to this kind of thinking? I consider myself a climate hawk. I'm very interested in cutting our carbon emissions. I think this is a critical stage for mankind that we have to rally to. And it it frustrates me a great deal that the economy is put above some of these existential type threats like climate change. But on the other hand, when you look at at population, what you see is that as nations advance, as their citizens get higher levels of income, population goes down. We actually hear a lot now from uh, European and Asian countries saying that, you know, they're in a population decline. And, you know, of course, politicians worried about who, who's going to be next year's consumers decade or two decades from now if, you know, we don't keep the population going. So on the one hand, you hear these arguments that radical life extension would be bad because it would result in overpopulation. But then you hear, you know, politicians saying we don't want people to go without having, you know, families and kids because, you know, consumerism will be drastically cut. So um, I don't think there's a consistent feeling in in the world about this one way or the other. What if the only people that got life extension were ones that didn't have kids? You know, like, so could they keep on living? If you've had four children, do you have to uh, opt out of life extension because of that and and allow, you know, someone such as myself who's never had kids to, to keep on living? Um, because, you know, I didn't overpopulate the planet. But I don't think that's what we should be looking at. I think we should be looking at the use of technologies to help all mankind at whatever population we have, and that we need to sustain the environment, which I think we can do with biotechnology and nanotechnology. Let's take these technologies and let's solve these problems, as opposed to saying this technology might cause a problem, therefore we shouldn't pursue it at all. Yeah, I just love hearing you talk about this kind of more democratic side of transhumanism. Because I think there's a way to think about transhumanism as a version of a performance-enhancing drug. Something that if you are if you can afford it, if you're able to achieve things that you would not normally be able to achieve. But I think the, the way that you're talking about it is different in the sense that it's supposed to be um, holistic, or it's not just one aspect of your life that you're improving. But I, I'm just very curious about why now? As exponential technology pushes all these trends faster and faster so that now you know you're practically getting a new uh, phone deployment or or major pc big breakthrough um etc um a couple times a year you know it may not be the same company but you know samsung will, will come out with something you know in the spring um that everybody else's previous fall phone didn't have and, um, you know, has to catch up to now. So I think that it's much easier for younger people to um, appreciate this because they've just seen it their entire lives. Our older generation really kind of had to to learn about it and to slowly adopt, you know, this, this sense um, by experience because much of our earlier life, this just wasn't the case. You know, my parents probably had the same 
um, exact color television for 10 years before, you know, uh, something came out that was extraordinarily better enough that, you know, they wanted to upgrade. Um, and, and, you know, depending on what it was in the household, like this, this was true for just about everything other than maybe cars, you know, like cars were more stylistic than anything, I think, but you know, um, how often do people trade cars now? It's, it's certainly, you know, at a much higher rate than they did in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. And it's not just money. It's, you know, it's the fact that, you know, um, there's often like a lot of cool differences that you want in your new car. I think part of what you're raising is this very thorny ethical question of who has access to these kinds of enhancements and who should have access to these enhancements. It's almost a sense that there's a danger of creating an elite class who have transhumanist appendages versus people who don't necessarily have access to those kinds of enhancements. I do think there's a, a very significant danger that society is already headed in a two-class system, a small group of haves and a, and a very large group of have-nots. When, when I look at health and medicine in particular, I, I can see a justification. I have spent years in Silicon Valley. Many of my friends were startup entrepreneurs, and everyone talks about the S-curve of startups, that the adoption of these technologies has to be very expensive at first. And then as, as problems get ironed out and costs go down, uh, they'll become more affordable to the masses. And, and I think that's fine for something like a cell phone. You know, so this year's cell phone can be twelve hundred bucks. But you know what? If you're buying a ninety dollar smartphone that is really state of the art of about four to five years ago, um, it's still gonna make calls, it's still gonna get you on the internet, you're still gonna be able to fill out forms or uh use it in almost the exact same way as a brand new twelve hundred dollar phone. Um so you know, the, the, the impact of the difference of the rich person's cell phone versus the poor person's cell phone, I think, is, is minimal. But, but what's different uh, with medicine is that behind every pill, every therapy is really pain and suffering. So a person that has osteoarthritis um, may be locked into a chair uh, and unable to exercise, unable to do the things that would help them stay younger and healthier on a long-term basis. So if you tell somebody that a particular therapy is going to cost ten dollars or $20,000, and I'm sorry, but right now it's not going to be reimbursable because this is a new technology and the insurance companies haven't really gotten on board, and it may or may not even be fully FDA approved yet. Um, it's only going to be available for people who are either um, have the ability to put a mortgage on their home uh, and raise the cash and you know get a stem cell injection or exosome injection or some other kind of therapy, or they're not going to get it at all. And and some very rational people will decide, you know, I'm I'm not going to jeopardize you know, my house so that my spouse, after I die, you know, has to move because, you know, we put a mortgage on it just for my, um, you know, stem cell injections in, into my knee. Um, so I think that there's a big difference between 
what type of technology it is and what what the uh, enhancement, if you want to call it, has has to offer. Uh, and when it involves cognition, when it, when it involves a person's um, health and health span, I I'm very much in favor of a widespread, um, low cost um, development of therapies and making them available to people, irrespective of their income. And it's one of the things that I've put in the Better Humans uh, mission statement. That's the biotechnology company that I run. Is that you know we're we're specifically looking for low-cost anti-aging therapies that can be rapidly adopted by the public because you know there's people suffering right now from tremendous numbers of different age-related diseases. So if we can tackle these, we can end a lot of human suffering. So if we could get it out in the form of, let's say, an already FDA-approved drug that can now be prescribed off-label by by physicians or um, an herbal supplement, um, then we don't have to wait 10 years for a novel compound to make its way through um, all the clinical trials and FDA approvals that are necessary to, to, you know, get it into into market. Yeah, and I think part of what you're getting at here is that there's not a huge difference between a car and, and your body. That why not also be able to upgrade or change or tr- lease whatever kind of uh, improvement you want. I think that's a main aspect of humanism, but it's probably a main as- aspect to many people's ethics and morality is just simply that to the extent possible, we should help other humans to avoid suffering. So I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily particular to transhumanism. What I think transhumanism adds to these thoughts is that we have certain new technologies that have only really come about in the latter half of the 20th century that essentially give us power over our own bodies in a way that has not occurred at any time in human history before. So whether we're talking about brain implants, you know, to allow us to search the internet, to get data, to do computations, to go to a cloud resource of, of information in our brains, or the ability to essentially walk around with an augmented AI as a part of your brain that you can query and ask sort of the way you might ask your subconscious to, to work on a problem, or you would instead ask your AI chip in your head to think about this and come up with how I should handle this. There's lots and lots of theory about how faulty human thinking can be and how there's all kinds of algorithms to improve human cognition. But learning those and applying those are very difficult. Making judgments about the odds of things has been shown over and over to be very difficult for humans. We just aren't meant from our evolutionary basis to have this as an innate understanding. So I think that these Transhumanist technologies can be of tremendous value, can help humans not only avoid suffering, but also flourish in areas of their life that that they want to excel in, whether it's understanding, whether it's the arts, performance, etc. Imagine being able to just instantly memorize all the steps to ballet or a performance. These could be really beneficial in all areas of a person's life. I would love to see humans having these opportunities and not having these opportunities 
limited to the lucky few who were born with certain types of abilities or I just want to circle back to a topic we've talked about a little bit earlier, which I think is about the accessibility of transhuman enhancements. And you spoke earlier about uh, this desire for a democratic availability. And I'm curious if you could talk about, about the practicalities of like, how do you how do you ensure that everyone has access to? There are some considerations that I think um, we always have to keep in mind that, you know, versus a cell phone where the new battery, you know, catches on fire, that that may cause some hardships. It may even cause some fatalities, but that's nothing like a medical advance that causes an unforeseen adverse event or um, more pain and suffering than it than it's you know, meant to alleviate. I do think that we need to take these things with with a lot of consideration as to what we're doing and how they're going to be implemented and who's going to be controlling the data and is it safe and tested. We certainly don't want to put brain chips in our head, for example, that cause cancer because of radio waves or, or something given off by it. But on the other hand, if it's merely an unknown danger, well, I want to wait 50 years after this technology is deployed before I would get one in order to know that it was safe for a long time. I wouldn't be one of those people. I would be the early stage of adoption uh, simply because I could see how much good it could do for me, how much benefit you know, having these resources at my fingertips would be. So I, w- I kind of follow what's called the proactionary uh, principle, which I think Max Moore is the the author of. It, it basically says that you should err on the side of action as opposed to erring on the side of caution. And that's because we all know what happens if you do nothing. If you do nothing at all, you know, we're going to be exactly as we are now. We're going to have the exact amount of pain and suffering. And, you know, accomplishing things is going to be um, as difficult as it is to, you know, write a new song or 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 create a new work of fiction or uh, figure out a mathematical problem, etc. Whereas, you know, with these advantages, we really don't know what humans are capable of accomplishing. One of the other larger scale issues that I I love to pick your brain about is this um, almost historical link between transhumanism and eugenics. Um, especially in the, in the Bay Area, there's a sense in which the, the you know, eugenicists at places like Stanford and Berkeley almost set the stakes for tr- what it means to be transhuman today, or that there's this um, historical uh, lineage dating back to er- or the early 20th century about what it means to change what it is to be human um, and to select a way for certain traits, whether that is racially coded or in terms of the biology. And I'm curious how you might reconcile um, this problematic history with your own research. Let me start off by saying that I'm not a, a scholar in philosophy. And although after becoming really interested in transhumanism and particularly the technologies, my focus was personally more on what are these technologies? What should I devote my time to pursuing in order to help humanity? The Transhumanist uh, Manifest pretty accurately uh, speaks to the rights of humans that I think people who would equate transhumanism with eugenics would would be upset about. The name of our organization, Better Humans, is not meant to imply that we have a view of what's better. It, it's that 
technologies can help humans become better at whatever they want to become better at. If at age 18, you decide you want to be transgender or you want to change your, the, the, the color of your, your um, pupil or your, um, your skin color, or um, you want to live much longer, you want to have you know, a certain type of athletic or, or sensory ability, um, that's, that should be your choice. I'm, I'm certainly against any idea that um, some sort of group, be it an ethics board or a government or anyone else, should either stop a person or, or enforce a person to do a particular thing or have children or not have children um, on the basis of, you know, anything having to do with their genetics. And I, and I think if you look at the possibilities of gene therapy, you know, the idea is that, that um, you know, certain genetic disabilities should not be passed down. Um, well, isn't it much more humane to just, to just edit, um, you know, those genes? And, you know, if a person has a heritable disease, then fix it. George Church has reminded me on numerous occasions, when gene editing works the way they believe it, it will in the near future, it won't be something that you have done and then you're stuck with. So even if you do something that was meant to relieve, you know, a disease or a malady, so, you know, let's say changing your sickle cell gene so that you no longer have that, and it turns out that well, in fact, you know, it has an offside effect that um, is undesirable. The way, you know, these pioneers envision gene therapy is that you would go back in and either reset it or fix the problem. You know, that it's a continual um, use of gene therapy that over time will just be safer and safer. And anything you do, do that, you know, you decide, I want a glowing green arm when you were 17 years old uh, becomes a, a normal arm when you have to go out and get a job, you know, at 25. So, you know, I, I, I personally think that a lot of the eugenics ideas were um, sort of bound in the time sphere that they existed. And, you know, they were based on observations in, in many parts by people that thought they were being scientific, you know, we, we breed pigeons and chickens and, and sheep and that sort of thing. Uh, isn't it, wouldn't it be scientific to breed humans? But then this obviously turns out to be a terrible yoke around the people who are being subjected to somebody's, somebody else's decision of, of like what's better and what's not. That's, that's not at all part of my transhumanism or, or that of the organization and, and the transhumanist uh, declaration, you know, makes this abundantly clear if you go online to like Wikipedia and track it down and, and read it. In closing, I have to ask you the back America question. And that's, uh, what is America to you? I think it's really difficult for someone who's born in a country to objectively talk about their country. I've seen a lot of really great things, uh, and, and I've seen a lot of very tragic, you know, things. From the time I was five to 15, you know, there were 
four major assassinations and then um, Watergate and, and uh, the war in Vietnam and all kinds of, of things that would, you know, make someone depressed and upset. And at the same time, uh, you know, and, you know, obviously civil uh, rights problems, which, which persist to this day. And at the same time, tremendous advancements in, in science and business and, and uh, education. You know, I'm, I'm a product of um, public education. I, I was able to go to, to college and law school on government loans. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in um, society helping people get a leg up uh, to get uh, educated and become, you know, useful, productive um, members of society and, and turn around and, and help others up. I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure uh, to talk to you. No problem, Josh. Thanks. Hello, everyone. This is Stan Bertolo. I just want to take the mic to say Happy New Year. And I also want to thank Josh Wagner, our intern based in Los Angeles. He has entirely managed this episode, identifying the source, conducting the interview, recording, and editing the episode. So, great job. Thank you, everyone. And again, if you like Back in America, make sure you share it with your friends. Goodbye for now.